Hello and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Koo, and in this podcast series, I'm joined by a range of sustainability and built environment experts to explore how we can best design our way out of this climate crisis. For the last eight years, my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers. And in this podcast, I get to share these conversations with you. Some of my most memorable conversations have been with today's guest, explorer, expedition leader and broadcaster, Paul Rose. Paul has had an incredible career, from being a base commander of the British Antarctic Survey, to serving as a vice president of the Royal Geographic Society, to presenting TV shows for the BBC, such as Oceans and Meltdown, a global warming journey. Today, we'll be taking a look at the role of adventure and exploration in inspiring a green recovery, and what that could mean for the design community and beyond. Hi there, Paul, and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. To start off, where are you today? And moreover, how are you? Hello, John. It's great to be back in touch with you again, sir. And I'm sorry I'm not actually with you physically. I'm in Windermere, Cumbria, in the beautiful Lake District, having just returned from, um, well, Norway, and then the Seychelles, and then seven months in Switzerland. And I'm great because yesterday we cleared quarantine. At 6 p.m. last night, we cleared our 14 days. And so we're sort of on the starting blocks, ready to escape for some adventures. You're, you're about to be free, free to roam, I think we were saying the other, the other day. Yes, exactly, free to roam. And, and it will be great. I mean, we're here in Windermere, which is, you know, can be a busy place, but we're on the edge of Windermere. So we look, we look down onto Windermere. I've got a great view at the moment. Across, I can see the Coniston Old Man, and slightly to the right, you know, right there is the Langdale Pikes. And up the other way are some amazing local fells, which are great to run around and be around and and just sense the outdoors and a sense of the wild places quickly. So I don't think we're suffering from an extreme case of nature deficit disorder, but we do need to get out. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I mean, you split your time, but I guess once you can get out and you're seeing everything from your window, but that being able to, to connect with what's around you at Windermere, like such a beautiful part of of England, um, you must be ready and raring to go. Exactly. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, um, you sort of expose priorities, don't you? We came in from Switzerland and one of the first things the very next day was for me to get in the garage and make sure the m- motorbikes were okay. The Ducati fired up as just pressing the button. And then the Royal Enfield, can, it's an old Enfield, can sometimes take a bit of... Uh, effort and luck and it started first kick so that was a great little thing ah yes that's a good sign and then it was pumping up all the bicycle tires including the tandem and everything making sure everything in the garage was perfect and then it was about the house and the garden and uh, and only yesterday i polished um, the car and our little vw camper and that was hugely satisfying you know and right next to me here in my kit room i've got all of our lightweight camping gear, and we're ready to escape. Any different version of escape, we are ready. It's interesting. Out of the past guests on this podcast, at least three of you guys have camper vans and are always ready to go. <laughs> I think that's it. And what, what we tend to do is in there is are all the basic uh, food supplies. Uh, there's always a good can of gas in the back and the basic bedding and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's that thing. And, you know, John, 
even if I don't get out and have a, a, a mini adventure, the fact that we're always ready for a mini adventure at the drop of a hat is a great thing for my mind. If yeah, if the camper was was uh, not not working, or if we didn't have the camping gear available, or any of the walking and hiking equipment available, it makes me a little bit nervous because I think ah, I just can't get out. So even if I'm home, we have an evening watching television when we could be out camping. The fact that it's all there, ready to go, is a great part of my base camp. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about your own remarkable journey. And I want to take you back a a couple of years. So your younger years were spent in Elm Park in East London, which is not so far away from where I'm recording this um, in London today. And you even had a stint with Ford in Dagenham, which was interesting hearing how your bikes and your cars are ready to roll. So in those early years, was nature an adventure already on your mind? It was, but I had no idea how to access it, John, because, you know, Elm Park, Romford, Essex, that region is a long way from the natural wild places. It's very, very close to, to certain urban wild places, but a long way from natural wild places. And I had a sense within me, I had an anxiety about being in school and being in these claustrophobic places. I found all of my early life claustrophobic. You know, I grew up in a council flat, a very loving family, mum and dad and me. And it was a great love. But I had that sense that I had to get out. And from about 11, 12 years old, um, I slept on the balcony and it was a wonderful thing. And it was a constant battle to drag my uh, mattress and, and bedding out from my room and put it on the balcony. And I did that around about my rough guess would be about 80% of the time sleeping on the balcony. It was flipping fantastic. And the classroom sessions at school were a disaster for me. I um, had a lot of trouble reading. I had a lot of trouble deciphering what was happening within the books and the classic learning methods. And and with no imagination whatsoever, John, I can still smell that overheated, painted uh, Victorian radiator that I used to sit next to and looking out the window, just like, oh, I just want to get out. And it wasn't until I was looking at, you know, television and, you know, Jacques Cousteau, Hans and Lottie House, the, the fictional character of Mike Nelson on Sea Hunt, they were living the dream. They were out there as divers. Now, I knew nothing about diving. I had no relatives that were divers, but I did love the sea. I could swim in the sea for hours. Um, and but it was this dream could I be a diver and it kept me going inevitably I failed 11 plus and in those days you could take it again at 13 and quite inevitably I failed the flipping thing at 13 and really was in a race to the bottom with a bunch of my Herbert mates and um, which I couldn't have said at the time I didn't know I was but uh, I was and a geography teacher Mr Gray who I is a man I shall never forget and if time travel is ever invented um, I'll bring him here or I'll go back to see him to to thank him he took me and the class to the Brecon Beacons when I was about 14 and that was it John you know I I could do it you know it was easy for me to find good routes up and safe routes down I was good on the water I was great at camping Uh, I, I didn't know I was doing mathematics but 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 using a map and compass was dead simple and and I one of my early positive memories was him praising me. I'd never been praised by a teacher before. And 
when he praised me, it was an enormous emotional moment. I was too flipping proud in those days to to thank him. And then sitting back there at the at the Merthyr Tidfil Youth Hostel, peeling potatoes into a bucket in the pouring rain, I never felt so alive. It was a sense of right. I need to be working and spending my life alongside nature. No idea how to do it, but I knew it was for me. It's really interesting that, you know, I, in some ways, I don't think things have necessarily changed. I mean, I've been following Daniel Raven Ellison's work around creating London as a national park city. And within that, there's still plenty of kids out there that they're not, you know, they don't always get the opportunity to go to Brecon or they don't have a Mr. Grey um, to help them. And then I guess I'm also thinking about the power of a teacher or the power of an individual in a child's life to introduce them to, to nature, to foster that curiosity. I, I don't think things have changed that much in some ways. Yes, it's good to hear you say it, John. I feel the same. There's an organisation that I'm a very keen supporter of, and it's the Council for Learning Outside the Classroom. And there's a whole consortium of very good organisations in there that, that promote the value of learning outside the classroom. In, in many other countries, a lot of classroom sessions, an enormous chunk of the curriculum is taught outside. Here in the UK, it seems to only be the, the sort of preserve of the wealthy uh, private schools. I mean, people are, uh, um, are held back from learning outside. It's the finest place to learn about anything. And in these COVID-19 times, which present so many different challenges, back to school does not have to mean back to the classroom. And I'm enormously frustrated about this, John. And um, let's hope there's some kind of one of the many um, uh, benefits that can come from COVID-19, if we look upon it as an opportunity, will be more outdoor-based education, I hope. No, absolutely. I think I was a bit worried, and I am still a bit worried, that kids are not having those opportunities to get out there. But actually, if you're looking to design a socially distanced, safe <laughs> experience for youngsters, this is a great opportunity to to find a way of taking them out into, into either local nature or a little bit further afield. It really is. And when you see it done right, it, it works so well. It's just lots of fun. You take a subject, history, English, mathematics, physics, anything. And with just a little bit of imagination, it can work. And of course, the, the old story from a lot of people is, ah, we don't have the facilities. Uh, we don't have the, the spaces when the weather gets bad and all that. And I say that's an amazing opportunity for businesses. You know, what about golf clubs, tennis clubs? Businesses that have got tons of space that aren't being used at the moment. Public spaces like libraries and museums and all that. With a bit of a bit of imagination, these spaces can all be made available to um, the, the children that really need to learn outside of the classroom. No, absolutely. I saw a bit of work you did for Earthwatch a couple of years ago where you were explaining the seasons with a, a few pieces of fruit while sat nicely outside in a local environment. <laughs> That was, a lot, that was a lot of fun. I love that. The, the Earthwatch Wild Days are a really great challenge because uh, I love them. I've been a supporter of them for many, many years and had this Wild Days thing. And it was like, right, Paul, can you go out and film this? And it would be have a cup of tea and rack my brains as to how to uh, film myself, explaining how the seasons work, for instance, as you well said. I, I love working with them. Next, I'd like to talk a little bit about your work at the Rothera Research Station. On, a, on an earlier episode, 
we spoke to climate scientist Dr. Ella Gilbert about her experience of field work with the British Antarctic Survey. Now, for her, she felt Antarctica was a truly special place. And the time that she spent there really sharpened her resolve to tackle the climate crisis through her work. What has it been like to lead expeditions with scientists and to take them out into the Antarctic wilderness? It's a complete delight, John. I mean, my most satisfying part of my work is what I call science support. I've done it most of my life. And, and of course, scientists might have a, a, a very challenging, risky ambitious hypothesis that's been developed in a laboratory, been been developed uh, with their colleagues. But to make that work at the end of the world's most challenging and longest supply chains means people like me. And I love that thing of converting this challenging hypothesis into icebreakers and ski equipped airplanes and boats of all kinds and remote or uh, mainstream research stations and Climbers and divers and boat drivers and cooks and doctors and dentists and the whole team that need to deliver this in the in the remote spots for a long time. So science support is a great thing for me. And of course, in Antarctica, that was the highlight of my science support career. Absolutely brilliant to to be in Cambridge at headquarters, British Antarctic Survey headquarters, get the whole season planned out with all of the field projects worked out as to what they need at certain times and how to deliver it, as well as all the mainstream base activity, of course, to keep base camp going with all the supplies and just over 100 people and visitors, and somehow then leave Cambridge. And in those days, I would leave with a suitcase full of paper and head off to the Antarctic to deliver it and make it happen. An unbelievable sense of satisfaction. For six years as base commander, you must have had some very interesting times. Any any particular stories or, or memories about particular trips or perhaps particular groups of scientists that, that come to mind? Well, yeah. Well, actually, I was 10 years base commander, John, 1992 to 2002. And yeah, I mean, really brilliant. There's lots of things. I mean, for, as a diver, um, I mean, I would have loved to have dived every day while I was in Antarctica, but I couldn't because I was running running the base. But Things like going down on those early dives with the marine scientists. And in those days, every dive was pretty much a world's first. And we were looking at stuff that we had no idea what it was and coming up with a brilliant marine scientist and saying, hey, what was that green thing that looked like this and looked like that? And they're saying, you know what? We've got no idea. And then on dives, when you're taking core samples from the bottom, which is a pretty routine exercise, going down there, bringing up a core sample, it's a short quite simple uh, dive and hearing whale song, you know, and you go, whoa, yeah, you know, the, the, the whales are miles away. And yet here we are living and hearing whale song and discoveries. I mean, I still remember the hot water drilling team getting through the Ronnie ice shelf and deploying their instruments that was going to measure Antarctic bottom water and still does as one of the main drivers for the global climate, seeing the Larsen ice shelf disappear you know, you, you, people talk about experiencing climate change, and it's pretty hard, even here in Windermere, to think, oh, climate change, global warming, it looks about the same as it ever did. But when you see an enormous ice shelf disappear, 
a place where we used to have field projects suddenly becoming open water for ships. And it's, it just brings it home that, wow, something is happening here. So life in Antarctica has been great. There's a lot of me still down there. I was lucky enough to, before I was base commander to do um, a season over at McMurdo, the American side of Antarctica, on a joint uh, British, New Zealand and American project. Then I came back to the British side and led a project on the Ant- Antarctic Peninsula with scientists. Then I went back to the American side of Antarctica and worked for NASA the space agency with their Mars lander robot uh, to test it up on Mount Erebus. Um, and then was a base commander roller for 10 years and, and and then back to Antarctica again, working for the great man, Jeff Severinghouse at Scripps University in the dry valleys. So there's, there's a lot of me in Antarctica um, and with some luck and with the end of the pandemic in sight somewhere in the next few years, uh, I shall be back. Absolutely. And I think it's it's such an important thing that and it's going to happen has to happen very quickly. I mean, in the last couple of years, have you been seeing more of a willingness from leaders within um, politics or business to to open themselves up to those those opportunities? Yes, well, I have. But some of it appears to be a bit of a sort of photo call photo opportunity i think what we could use that one of you know if we look at covid19 as as an opportunity to reset values um i think what we need is people to demonstrate that they've actually been out there and made something happen i mean imagine a voting form where you're voting for a community leader or a new chief executive or uh, uh, a you know uk politician and at the top they had to display the values and it wouldn't be i once went to the Arctic and had a photo taken next to a sled dog, but it would have to be hands-on amongst it. You know, I was in Africa helping to plant mangroves. I was then over here doing humanitarian and arts work, and I was doing local work, and this is my time in the field at the front line getting hands dirty, not just funding it um, or getting pictures of it. And I think if we did that, then we would soon get used to business degrees and other qualifications and party alliances way down in the list, but we would know exactly what kind of person we were voting for because their values were displayed. Absolutely. And, you know, politicians are, are human beings. And I think it's that human reaction to what you, your ventures and what you explore that can really make a difference on an individual. Absolutely, John. Yeah. And I think that's what we need. We need we need that sense that the people that are, are guiding us um, have actually experienced uh, um you know, credible things themselves. And I guess that probably touches on another, another angle that's closely related to that. If we, if we look away from our leaders um, and we think about what's the role of exploration and then adventure for a green recovery? I mean, we're looking for a way out of both coronavirus and climate change. They're, they're two biggest issues to me. Um, and we need routes that are going to be good for planet and also good for people's health. The two things are very much intertwined. So what is the role of adventure in tackling a green recovery? Well, we need adventure because it's that spirit that gets us to the front line. We need to have that and also foster that very natural curiosity that we're all born with. And um, when, we, when, when we're young and we have that curiosity, what does this do? What's it like over there? What's it like to feel this? A lot of that can be flushed out through these rigid um, exam box ticking curricula that we have. Um, we need to foster a, a, a more sort of true holistic development that is 
nature first. That's the first thing we can do. And then we'll have more people with an explorer's, adventurer's mindset. And that's all we need is to get that mindset going. And then that means that when we when we see the new pledge, I mean, just today, John, you'll have seen it, uh, the world leaders, you know, the UN summit is coming up. There's been a terrific amount of success in this 30% of the planet protected by 2030. And the count at the moment is something like 64 countries have signed this pledge that they're going to use the um, COVID-19 experience and the green recovery to address climate change and the loss of our biodiversity. I mean, we spoke about it, the, the, you know, we, our fingers are crossed that scientists are going to find the, the vaccine for, for COVID-19, and that's a good short-term solution. But the only long-term solution is to reset our, uh, our balance with nature. And the way to do that, of course, is to protect more of nature. And there's a, a wonderful um, agreement to get 30% of the planet protected by 2030. And even more exciting is that that's seen as a waypoint to protect 50% by 2050, you know, E.O. Wilson's half-Earth. And then quite possibly even more exciting than that was the news that you will have seen about six weeks ago where the Financial Times and all of the other credible uh, organisations on on finance reported that the cost of protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 would be outdone by five times from the financial rewards from it. So what a great business investment that is, five times. So we're really on to something here, and I think it's all come from scientists at the front line. Their work has never been more valued than now. And scientists are explorers and adventurers, and adventurers and explorers are great communicators. And so we need to be out there at the front line, and there's no better um, career path than considering yourself an explorer or an adventurer. So, Paul, we're recording this right at the end of September 2020. And last week's big science comms and general interest story on the news was Sir David Attenborough joining Instagram. Now, in his first message, he said, saving our planet is now a communications challenge. Now, as a presenter, a broadcaster and an expedition leader, how do we communicate the climate crisis better? Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I love that. I loved it when he said that. And of course, all of us agree. Yes, it is because we've got we've done enough science We've you know, we don't need necessarily to keep on finding more science and more climate change science papers. What we need is some some action, some smart action. And the way to do that is to hunt for a different way of communicating it. It's it's an enormous challenge, John, because we've got not everybody reads science papers, not everybody uh, takes those science papers and acts on them. Not everybody watches films about environmental matters and global issues like climate change and then acts on that. So we need to find a way to distill that into action. I think the first thing we can do is remember we really do need outdoor education. We need to get young ones out early and often in nature and have an education system that is nature first. I mean, our education system is pretty much a relic of the Industrial Revolution, which was all about get people into a jo- into some education so they can get out and start um, working. So I think we need a nature-first education system which will help communicate the value 
of nature to the young ones. And so that's the good long term thing. But right now we need a sense of reality and not everybody can go to Antarctica and see uh, uh, ice shelves floating away. Not everybody can go up to the Arctic and see the melting Greenland ice cap and the lack of ice uh, further north in the Arctic. And not everybody can go in the deep sea and and see uh, the effects of uh, global warming there and ocean acidification. So what we need is a way to have people feel it and mean it. And I wonder if one thing with that is finance. We've got finance at the moment, which is you know old-fashioned, and I think we devalue nature. We, we don't truly cost our lifestyle in regards to nature. And we all know that with, with these terrible, um, unsustainable subsidies for fossil fuel and industrial fishing and all the rest of it, that we live this, it helps this disconnection. You know, I can go into the local, local supermarket and always buy a fish at about the same old price, no matter what's happening at sea. But I would love to go in there and see mackerel reduced by, you know, 90% because uh, globally there's, there's, a, there's a surfeit of mackerel, it's tons. And then go in the next period and see that uh, this fish is hugely expensive because there's not much of it. And in fact, it's now stopped. So we, we are not connected to the planet. Our, our modern lifestyles insulate us from affairs, um, you know, we're lucky we, in many ways. We can live our urban lives and, and continue to do anything we want, no matter what's happening out there in the planet. So we need to always be in touch with the planet. I think that if our, if our mortgage rate suddenly jumped or went down because of uh, a global issue, that would affect. So your mortgage is invested, your mortgage company invests in this product. This product is fossil fuels. It's now massively expensive, so your mortgage is going to go up. That would make you jump. That would make us uh, work out how we're going to buy our insurance or mortgages or pension plan. And I think all of these big financial investments should be directly linked to nature one way or the other. And then if we're connected to it, we'll understand the messaging. And the messaging itself should be simple. And it's along the lines of everything we do matters. So it's like David Attenborough coming on the television and saying, Paul Rose, when you do your recycling tonight, it matters. And it matters because of this. Um, and Paul, when you take your um, journey to Cornwall next week, it matters. And, and we need to get that sense that every single thing we do matters to the planet. And it matters because we set a good example we understand that our lives are linked. And I also think that when we look at the news, and I was watching the BBC last night, and there's the ticker tape going along underneath um, the newscaster. And it was reporting on, you know, soap operas and sport and all kinds of other interesting things, but it's just running along the bottom. In the meantime, the newscaster was talking about COVID-19. And I think that if every time... A, a news reporter spoke about a scientific fact or element, it should say in bold letters at the, the bottom, we know this fact because John Koo and his science team spent 119 days on the Arctic ice cap measuring, and here's how it is. And to look for more information, click the green button now. 
And every time a fact, a science fact or a global issue on climate change is mentioned, it should be a a sidebar. It should be a ticker tape running at the bottom. It should be prefaced by why we know it and why it matters to you. And that might answer some of the challenges we have with the, the levels of trust people have. And I think I, I, I totally agree with you that this need to reconnect the dots. If you, when you go shopping, you just up until now, we've been taught to consume. We've not been taught about thinking um, what the impact is of our food, food purchase and to be able to see. Yeah. I, I love the idea of the, the cost of a product changing depending on kind of how, how we've been treating nature. I, I've also seen some great work around, around carbon and, and being able to put a, you know, your carbon footprint on, onto a product. And I think if we can find a way to make it simple and we can make those proof points easy to find through links to the, the science and the papers, that might go some way to avoiding kind of just rhetoric or the promises that end up being a bit more empty than they should be or the the kind of just a a pledge culture without action that I think we have to we don't have time for with the urgency of the climate crisis very well said John because a lot of these comments that are made and statements statements that are made are just from politicians who want to maintain a lifestyle or they're from businesses that want to maintain um, a decent return for their investors Uh, they're not actual facts and we need a true fact and action-based society Absolutely. I'm going to take you to a different um, kind of topic. So you, you have a real passion for the ocean and for diving. And it's a shared passion that we both have for scuba diving. For me, it's actually what inspired me to switch from being a city lawyer to working in sustainability and specifically around ocean plastic issues with our interface networks partnership um, alongside the Zoological Society of London and a company called Aquafil that we'll talk about in a moment. But for you, in terms of diving, how has it inspired you? And also, is it true that when you were filming once for the BBC, you had your ear nibbled by Moray Eel? <laughs> yes, well, the ocean for me has always felt an opportunity. If I'm ever asked, you know, give us one word for the ocean, it's always opportunity opportunity as a kid i couldn't keep out of the water i would swim for hours literally hours i didn't understand ocean currents but i used to love um being out of sight of the beach uh swimming on the south coast and then pitching up on another beach because the uh current longshore current had taken me somewhere i used to love that feeling because it drove my mum and dad completely batty um hopefully that longshore current was leaving you on the same beach always taking me around the point or something and yes and so for me when i then went from that to my first ever dive which was 1969 at chessel cove at portland going in that first dive was the first time i really sensed that the ocean really is the world's largest, least explored, least understood and least protected ecosystem on the planet. And I thought, this is for me. I just had to get amongst it. And it's, I think for me, it's staggering that, I mean, some people say we know more about outer space sometimes than we do about the deeper, darker parts of our ocean. And that's, that's, 
That's crazy. <laughs> yes. And and it's very, very true, John. Um, in fact, um, for a long time, I used to, in my work, I would say we know less than 10% or about 10% of the, of the ocean. And then after some really big expeditions, um, we realized that we know less than that. So the, the, the more we learned, the less we understood. And then I found myself standing in front of people saying, well, we know about 7% of the ocean. And it's not unusual now for people to say that we, that we understand about 5% of the ocean. So that's how little we've actually explored. And I think about with diving and scuba diving, because it's one of those rare moments of when you're underwater, unless you're using a very sophisticated setup, you can't have a chat with someone. <laughs> you're you're going to have to communicate through hand signals or writing on a board. So it's just you. And it's just you and the fish and the marine life and the invertebrates around you. Um, and I always kind of like how the, how the fish kind of literally look at you. If you're there with a grouper, just look at you thinking, what are you doing down here? Like, well, you've entered our realm. You've entered our, our, our world. I'm de- designed as a grouper to happily sit and navigate my way around here. You kind of look a bit hilarious. Um, but I think there's something very personal about that connection when you do dive between you and the wildlife and the coral reef that surround you. It's a really nice connection. Yes, absolutely, John. There, there is a, a great connection. I'm, I'm super glad to hear you say that you feel it too. And these, these are wild animals. You know, wild animals aren't only uh, tigers and, and lions and giraffes. Wild animals are everything in the sea. Even the small little silver things and the great big sharks and all the rest. We're, we're dealing with wild animals and you're right to talk about me missing a piece of my ear. Yes, um, I, was, I was on the Clipperton. I, I led the Clipperton expedition from National Geographic Pristine Seas, one of their very successful expeditions in Mexican waters, actually, Pacific. And um, there, normally, as you well know, moray eels are hidden back in the nooks and crannies of the reef and very rarely pop out. But it was the only place we'd ever seen where there were so many morays free swimming and they were all over the place in extraordinary numbers, beautiful, beautiful things, as you well know. In fact, they were so curious, they were coming around us and were getting up between um, our, ourselves and the diving gear, swimming up around the back of the BCD. And we were there we were at 20-something metres deep, consistently taking our scuba diving gear off, untangling them and putting it back on. And um, while I was looking at the mores and getting some... Um, uh, having them film me looking at the mores, uh, one came up and locked onto my left ear. Um, hurt like hell, and um, it's a, it's a bit of a funny thing to see because then at the surface, I'm trying to deliver a piece to camera about the mores with um, tons of blood uh, coming out of my left ear. So I guess I deserved it, and um, it wasn't a love bite at all. It was a proper good bite. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and. Then- I was going to say the diving community is an interesting one as well. It's very passionate. I think people have a shared bond around it. And I, um, I just want to take you to Windermere in 2013 and running a, 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 a kind of lake cleanup at Lake Windermere. Now, I understand you managed to find was it around 10 tonnes of rubbish and you had 260 divers and 100 volunteers, including people who'd come as far from as far as field as Sweden and Argentina, all coming together to the lakes um, to help with this cleanup. Yeah, it was great fun, John. I mean, we, you know, we look at Lake Windermere. You know, Windermere is, you know, England's largest lake. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. And yet underneath, 
when I would just snorkel or dive or even look from the surface sometimes, you could see all this rubbish down there. So I put a call out that we were going to have what I called a debris dive, and I expected that we'd get lucky. We'd get 20 or 30 people show up. And as you say, we had a few hundred, <laughs> and it was a it was a big event. Um, I absolutely loved it. We got about 11 tonnes of of rubbish. We did artwork with it. We luckily uh, got good press coverage and uh, I was on television about it. And it was a way of bringing it to life. Look, um, there are some things that you see in the lake that might be relatively understandable uh, because they've been dropped overboard and we can accept that um, up to a point. But there's no excuse for, for dumping paint and, and fire extinguishers and, and toilets and outboard engines and absolute tons of glasses and plastic and just terrible rubbish so it was a great thing to run i loved it and um, but for covid19 i would have been doing another one right about now so paul i wanted to talk about a kind of a company we have in in common in terms of aquafil and i wanted to talk about what it was like to visit their facilities in in slovenia a couple of years back well, you know, uh, John, going to Ljubljana is, it was an absolute brilliant three days. One of the best three days I've ever had because a big factory, Julio and Eddie, who you know very well, and I'd only ever seen at the London Design Festival, treated us very well indeed. And I think one of the best things was arriving into this enormous warehouse where there's tons and tons and tons of old fishing nets. And seeing at one end the, the nets that had come in from the Scandinavian fish farms, and they were about three metre cube, beautiful, uh, mostly black, and ready for recycling. And they looked as if they'd been used for only a few months, which is, I think, about right. Um, and then at the other end of the scale were these awful nets, massive things weighing many tons that have been brought from uh, the sea. They've been abandoned fishing nets, ghost fishing, or they'd been on beaches and were brought in with, oh, you know, concrete and lumps of rusty metal and different fibres in this horrible mix. And next to them was this pile of huge industrial plastic, and they had worked out how to recycle the whole lot of it. And I found that an amazing start to the day. And eventually you go through and you see how they do it. You see these machines that they actually developed. I mean, it took many years and lots of money and investment and talent to to put these machines together and then going through the whole process and at the end seeing this unbelievably beautiful fine nylon that goes into making very desirable goods. And what a great way to engage people with plastic recycling and why we should do it is that they've got these goods that are desirable People are going to buy them anyway to have them. And then guess what? It just happens to be the right thing to do. And that is a beautiful way to approach a global issue like plastic. I wish more people had the chance to see the work they're doing at Aquafil. Um, I think they really have captured that ability to turn waste into opportunity and to make it it beautiful. And they're the yarn goes into kind of flooring products for us and carpet, but it also goes into great fabrics. Um, I mean, they've had some collaborations with Prada and Gucci and the, the high end, but actually anything that's using nylon yarn, which can be regenerated again and again and again, um, can source their, their material. And it's, it's such a, a clever system. 
that they don't need to be going and looking for anything from fossil fuels. They're proving that you can turn off that tap and then you can actually use what we have at the moment and just recycle it again and again in a circular way. Exactly. It's a great success story. We were talking about communication of global issues earlier. And, you know, it's easier to communicate by success to say, look, this works. It works environmentally. It works economically. It works socially and ethically. So, yes, if only we could get everybody into uh, uh, Ljubljana. But failing that, why don't you and I work on Julio and Eddie and see if we can come up with... um, uh, a virtual visit that's uh, freely available to everybody, a, a virtual visit to the Ljubljana factory. <laughs> Happy to, to explore that. And I think, I think part of it is I think that fashion world and the fact that everyone wears, wears, wears clothes might be key to, to unlocking this and making it wider. But I, I so agree that being able to show the solutions alongside the challenges and the problems is absolutely key. We don't need climate pessimism. We need to be fostering a form of climate optimism like a realistic one but a a solutions-based approach that's getting people more enthusiastic about playing their part exactly and then people do begin to understand that everything they do does make a difference well count me in i'm up for it we shall talk um unfortunately we're gonna we're gonna be running out of time and we could happily talk for 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 many an hour and i'm sure we will um off this pod um when we next have a chance to to catch up but if um if the listeners want to find out more about your work and catch you on social media, how can they follow you? Well, thanks, John. Well, I've got a pretty active website, which is paulrose.org. Um, I'm busy on um, Twitter, uh, Facebook and Instagram as Paul Rose. Um, Instagram is Paul Rose Explorer. And it's a good time to, to, to think about what we're doing virtually. I mean, we ran, helped to run the... Um, Global Biodiversity Festival back in May, and I got so excited from it that I decided to do a book. So we put together a book, the Global Biodiversity Festival 2020. We gave it free to all of the organizations and all of the speakers. Bearing in mind, we had thousands of people from 80 countries watching 65 speakers for three days. We put this beautiful book together. Everybody got it free, and we've just made it free PDF download from my website and um, I'll be pushing that this week so people know. I'm very happy that this evening um, I'm back on with the Yorkshire Dales project uh, which was a a fun series and my work at National Geographic Pristine Seas continues. It's all virtual work at the moment. Um, There's a lot of information about it on my website and the National Geographic Pristine Seas website and we'll be back at sea around about mid-summer of next year. That's exciting. We'll provide some of the links to this um, on the blog that accompanies this this podcast, so people can find the biodiversity book and and find out what you're you're doing. But thank you so much for your time. Very excited. One that you're going to be free to roam uh, later today, but also to see where what happens next in terms of with National Geographic Pristine Seas and all the other projects that you've been working on, and also looking forward to seeing you on our screens as always because your shows are always amazing. John Gray, so it's been. I've always enjoyed uh, being with you, and normally that's been at the London Design Festival. But uh, it's been great to run alongside you uh, like this, and um, see you in the gym one day, or at the very least, the virtual gym. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, John. What a pleasure to hear from Paul. There, I have a sense that he is just as curious and passionate today as he was sitting on that East London balcony wonder 
never ceases. And that's something we must ensure we pass on to the next generation. Join us on the next episode where I'll be talking to Stacey Smedley, the Executive Director of Building Transparency. We'll be discussing the need to put embodied carbon at the heart of the design process. We'll also hear from Stacey about innovation and a powerful tool she helped co-create whilst at Skanska, the Embodied Carbon in Construction Calculator, or EC3, an industry-wide open-source programme for quantifying and reducing the embodied carbon of building materials and projects. Thank you for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe, share with others, or leave a rating. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface. If you'd like to know more about our flooring products and sustainability journey, check us out at interface.com or on Instagram at Interface. Thank you too to our producers, Tangerine.